Amen. Thanks, Brad. So as Brad mentioned, we've been looking at the mothers of Jesus over the last uh, few weeks uh, who have been recorded uh, for all history in the lineage, lineage of Jesus uh, in our Advent series um, this year. And we've been reminded over and over again that God's people are awaiting people. They have longed and waited for faithfulness as we looked at the first week and been called to take fearless inventory of the darkness as they await a true and faithful king in Jesus. They have waited for judgment and justice and been called into humble, patient graciousness by Jesus who is both a righteous judge and also a profoundly gracious one. And today we find in God's people, God's people in the midst of profound and bitter suffering, longing for redemption, longing for suffering, loss, and dashed hopes to be redeemed. The story of Naomi is a heartbreaking one. In the opening verses uh, of Ruth, the ones just before where we read this morning, we get the backstory of the suffering that Naomi has been through up until this point, and also Ruth is included in so much of that suffering. In the chaos of Israel's rebellion a few years earlier, a famine had come on the land, and Bethlehem, which is the hometown of Naomi and uh, Elimelech, her husband, uh, which Bethlehem literally in Hebrew means house of bread, Bethlehem was a place that had no bread. It was in famine in this time, and Elimelech, Naomi's husband, and her and their two sons sojourned to this land of Moab to find food. And it's not only a foreign land, but also a foreign land that had a complicated, bitter, rivalrous relationship with Israel. But while they are abroad in this land, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, dies. It's just Naomi and her two sons in a foreign land, and her two sons marry women from Moab, and they get by for about 10 years until tragedy strikes again, and both of Naomi's sons die. And here's Naomi in a land that is not her own. Far from her family and her friends and culture she grew up with, and a human's worst nightmare comes true. She loses not only her husband, but also both of her children. She outlasts her children. And not only that, we were left to infer that her sons were not able to have children because they were married for 10 years and there were no children. It is a bitter and tragic lot that Naomi has had. So much so that later when Naomi returns to her hometown in Bethlehem all these years later and they say, is this Naomi? She says, no. Don't call me Naomi. Don't call me that anymore. Naomi means pleasant. But call me Mara, which literally means bitter in Hebrew. Verse 20, she said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Naomi not only knows suffering and loss like the back of her hand, her grief and the bitterness of it has become her identity. The way that she sees the world, she says, don't call me pleasant, the name my father and mother and husbands and sons called me, they are all gone now. But call me bitter, because life has wrung me out. What do I have left? I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Life once had promise, but not now. Suffering in its bitter taste is who I am now. Some of you in this room 
no suffering like the back of your hand. You have tasted the bitterness of promise given away to loss. Ones you once knew as strong, withering with age and sickness of body or mind. The joints that once felt limber, aching with the rising of the morning sun. The longing for children dashed with another round of bad news. And sometimes the losses that we feel are more mundane than that, but they linger with us still. A job that doesn't use our gifts well, or that inhumanly tries to squeeze every last drop out of you. Friendships that were deep but fractured or faded over time. Even the hopes that we have for a given week that it will be a fruitful week ending with a litany of unfinished and more complicated realities. <laughs> Even if you haven't tasted of capital T tragedies, you know what it is like for things that so often seem full of promise to end in disappointment and loss. And so Naomi says, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. When she had still been in Moab and she took stock of her life, she heard that there was bread again in her hometown, and she decided that it was time to go back. So she, a widow, and her two widowed daughters-in-law began to head back to Israel. But as they began on the way to Bethlehem, Naomi says, wait a minute. What do I have to offer you, my daughters-in-law? How can I ask you to go to a foreign land with me? The experience that I've just had for the last however many years. To a foreign land where you know no one and have little prospect of finding a husband. And so she says to them in verse 8, Go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each, you in the, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. Naomi does not want them to suffer more as she has suffered. She blesses them and she tells them, you've been kind to me and my husbands and my sons, but don't suffer more for my sake. Stay in Moab, go to your families, may God give you rest from this weariness and a husband and a hope for the future. And she kissed them and then these three women who have been through so much suffering together, wept together and lifted up their voices. But then something surprising happens. They say to her, no, we will not return with you to your people. Or sorry, no, we will return with you to your people. It's kind of important. <laughs> but Naomi won't have it. She essentially says, you've suffered enough. What do I have to offer you? I'm too old to have a husband and sons, and even if I did, are you going to rob the cradle and wait for them to marry you? She says, it's exceedingly bitter, me, for, bitter for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. She says, I wish that I could offer you something, but I am empty-handed. I have nothing but loss to give you. And as a side note, who knows what the Lord will do with faithfulness even when we're empty-handed. And they wept again, and Orpah kisses her as she gave in to her mother-in-law's pleas to go home. But rather than leaving, Ruth does the opposite. It says that she clung 
to, to, to Naomi. She clings to Naomi. This word cling is the same Hebrew word used in Genesis when it tells us that a, father, that a husband should leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and cling to her. It's the same Hebrew word used in this passage. Though Naomi makes one last attempt to get Ruth to turn back, Ruth responds with this incredible declaration of commitment and care and loyalty to her mother-in-law. She says, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. And your God, my God. And where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if, nothing, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. Ruth says to Naomi, I will bind my life to your life. And even if it is a life of suffering, so be it. I will suffer with you. Your people, though they are foreign to me, will be my people. And your God, not the, though they're not the religion of my homeland, will be my God. I'm with you even unto death. And she even calls in imprecation or curse on herself as she, if she fails to be faithful to these promises to Naomi invoking the personal name of Yahweh, the God of Israel, to hold her to account. And that finally puts an end to Naomi's protests and attempts at getting Ruth to go home. And you know what's crazy? It is after these declarations from Ruth to Naomi that when Naomi gets back to Bethlehem, she says, don't call me pleasant, call me bitter. Don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. And why? Because I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. And this tells us something important about the experience of suffering and what it can do to us. How suffering can malform us as we wait for redemption. You and I can see as we read this story that while Naomi has suffered real and devastating loss, the Almighty has not brought her back to Bethlehem empty or empty-handed. He has brought her back with the gift of Ruth. She has been brought back home with a daughter-in-law that loves her, that is willing to give up anything and everything to be with her, that has said, I have already walked through suffering with you and I will not stop. I will walk with you into any suffering, even unto death. And yet Naomi says, the Almighty has brought me back empty. Beloved, as we wait in Advent, as we wait in suffering, longing for redemption and death and loss and disappointment and frustrating jobs and broken relationships and ailing bodies, there's a great danger for us that we might, be confused, that we might confuse dashed hopes with lost hope. Yet this... This world in its brokenness and decay under the curse of the fall, suffering and death and sin, awaiting the return of Jesus, it will break our hearts if it hasn't already. And dash our many, even very good hopes. But that does not mean that hope itself is lost. Tish Harrison Warren in her excellent Advent book recounts the words of Serbian Bishop Nikolai Velimirovic, if I can pronounce that correctly. 
As this bishop writes as a prisoner in a concentration camp during World War II, and this is what he writes as a prisoner in a concentration camp. He says, Do not grumble against heaven because it does not fulfill your hopes. Grumble against yourselves because you do not know how to hope. Heaven does not fulfill hopes, but hope. The most sublime and steadfast hope heaven always fills. Tish Harrison Warren goes on to observe and reflect on this quote from from Nikolai. She says, "Nikolai, Nikolai rebukes the smallness of our hopes. The naive confusion of our hopes with the most sublime and steadfast hope found in Jesus alone. Entering faithfully into Advent helps wean us off our little hopes, our false hopes, and teaches us to place our confidence in the true hope of the world. When we suffer, we often forget that our hope is not in the particularities of those sufferings or dashed hopes. Suffering will be overcome, not only in the future, but even in some ways in the here and now. But our hopes for healing, fruitful work, a flourishing family, they won't all be realized in the here and now. We should long for those things. We should pray for those things. But those things are our hopes. They are not our hope. It is always tempting when we suffer and experience heartbreakingly dashed hopes to believe that hope is lost, but it is not. The promises are still sure, and we have tasted of redemption in Christ's life, death, and resurrection, but we await a a restoration in Jesus' return. This is why Romans 8, 22 and 23 says this, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, we are groaning We have the first fruits of the Spirit. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons and the redemption of our bodies. We are waiting eagerly, but we are waiting still. And we are waiting alongside creation for the redemption of our bodies and for the hope of glory. And we need to know that suffering can misshape us into believing that because real and heartbreaking hopes are dashed, that all hope is lost. But also we need to see that suffering can misshape us to believe that there is no comfort in suffering now and that God has left us alone to suffer. We might say, well, maybe he will return one day to make all things new and maybe in the future glory we can say what Paul says in Romans 8.18 when he says, for I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. But right now, these sufferings are real and they are heavy and they are heartbreaking. And that's true but it is not true that God has left us alone and without comfort in the midst of them. He has not left us alone in our suffering. It's remarkable how Ruth's love for Naomi is described later in the book of Ruth by Boaz. Do you know the word that Boaz uses to describe Ruth's love for Naomi? It's a Hebrew word that you've probably heard us talk about before if you've been to the table a few times. He uses the word hesed, steadfast love. This is the word that the Bible most often uses to describe God's unfailing, never give up, covenant love towards his people. 
And what's fascinating is that Naomi has used this very word in blessing Ruth and Orpah. And when she tried to send them home for the first time, she said, may God show you has said, may he show you his kindness and his steadfast love. And in chapter two, she calls for God to bless Boaz, who would redeem and marry Ruth for the hesed that Boaz has shown to Ruth. But you know what Naomi has been missing in all of that? Is that God has been showing his hesed to her. His steadfast, never give up covenant love to her through Ruth this whole time. Even as she is saying to those around her, may God show you his kindness. May God give you his hesed. She says, I am empty handed, but the Lord had been showing her his hesed in Ruth. Listen again to verses 16 and 17. Ruth says to Naomi, where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts from you, parts me from you. Does this sound like God's steadfast love to you? All the way back in Exodus chapter six, verse seven, God said to his people, I will take you to be my people. I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord, your God. And Deuteronomy 31, eight, he said, it is the Lord that goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Do you see what's happening? Ruth is embodying God's steadfast love to Naomi. And overwhelmed by suffering, Naomi just couldn't see it. But it was there. Though her hopes were profoundly broken, hope was not lost. God had not left her alone. In the Gospels, in the New Testament, Peter essentially asked Jesus, Jesus, what will become of us who have left everything to follow you? Who have given up our whole livelihoods to follow you? Who have suffered everything? And, and we know from history that Peter, in, his, in the end, was crucified upside down. He would suffer everything for the sake of following Jesus. And he says to Jesus, what will become of us? who have left everything to follow you. And this is what Jesus says. He says to you, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. What Jesus is saying to Peter is that if we are to follow him, it will not shield us from suffering. And sometimes it will even exacerbate it. But there is an ultimate hope of eternal hope, a hope of life and renewal of all, of all things. But even now in this time, amidst the waiting and suffering, God's people will receive a hundredfold the brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers and resources that they have lost for the sake of following him. How? How will we receive this? Is this a, a gospel of prosperity that if we just have enough faith, God's gonna make us rich and give us all the things that we want? No. The way that God gives us this promise, the way that God can promise this to us is because this is your family. And it's not just the table in Lafayette, Colorado, but the church universal in every town and country and every continent where people watch and wait for Jesus' return. You will have heartbreaking losses 
and many of you already have, but you have a family to embody God's has said to you. His steadfast love and kindness. Beloved, God has not called waiting persons. He has called awaiting people. Do you hear that? God has not called waiting persons. He has called awaiting people. We have to know that we all wait together amidst suffering, longing for Jesus' return, and we offer God's has said and steadfast love and kindness to one another in the waiting. We wait and long for redemption amidst suffering together. Naomi, though she saw herself as empty, had the hesed of God embodied to her in Ruth. She was a physical expression of God's never failing, never give up, covenant love. Suffering can cause us to think that because real hopes are truly lost, that all hope is lost, but it is not. And then we can make us blind to the ways that God is already meeting us, but he is meeting us. He is amidst us, and he has given us awaiting people to live and hope and struggle with. And you know what's beautiful? Naomi seeing God's kindness and provision amidst suffering was not a prerequisite for God giving her his kindness and provision. We so often get this backwards. We're like, man... If I can't see God's kindness and provision, if I don't have the faith that God's going to give it to me, he's never going to show it to me. (laughs) But Naomi's whole story is a story of her not seeing it and God giving it to her anyway. You may be tempted this morning to say, oh, but I am like Naomi in my suffering. I identify myself with bitterness. I believe that God has left me empty. And no doubt there will be plenty of days and moments and maybe even weeks and months where that feels very true. But the character of God is that he always initiates the movement of grace. That even before we have begun to see it or believe that it is real or believe that it is for us, thank God that you and I seeing God's kindness and provision amidst suffering is not the prerequisite for God giving us his kindness and provision. And that is good news for us. In fact, one of the biggest themes in this passage and in the book of Ruth is that the hope that we have because of God's has said character, his steadfast love, is often unseen by his people. Naomi's hope for Ruth to find a husband was for her to go back to her family in Moab with her false God and familiar faces. Because rationally, Naomi thinks for a foreign woman to come into Israel, there would be few prospects for her, for a husband, and a hope for the future of her life in this patriarchal society. Surely for a foreign woman to come to Israel would provide few prospects. And this calls us into a practice uh, that shows us a practice that is kind of foreign for us, that the Lord would provide a kinsman redeemer in Boaz. Now, none of us have kinsman redeemers in our modern society, in fact, uh, I think we would all classify it as pretty weird if we saw it happening or functioning. But there was a practice in ancient Israel called this kinsman redeemer. An Israelite practice where when someone was widowed and impoverished, she could be redeemed by a relative who would marry her and give her all of the rights and protections and financial stability of his family. And Naomi had not thought to hope that God might provide a redeemer for Ruth through his own people. 
that there was truly a place for foreigners amongst God's people. But if Naomi and Ruth could not have fathomed that God would provide a kinsman redeemer for Ruth and Israel, if even that hope was unseen to them, how much more could they have not begun to fathom that we would be here on a Sunday morning 3,300 years later talking about them? Because God not only had plans to provide for a foreigner amongst his people, he intended to use the lineage of a Moabite woman to bring not only King David into the life of Israel, but to bring King Jesus into the life of the world. Matthew 1.5 says, Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse. Beloved brothers and sisters, we are an awaiting people. We are waiting amidst profound suffering and some of you in ways that you never imagined that you could be in your story. And some of you will suffer yet in ways that you haven't yet imagined. But all hope is not lost. God visits his people. It may just be that his steadfast love has been or will be displayed to you, though imperfectly, of course, by someone in this very room. Or maybe you will display it. I know some of you have already been displaying the steadfast love of God to your family and friends in profound and beautiful ways that only your Father in heaven knows fully. I could call out several specific names in this room who I know have loved your family and your friends and have poured out your life and are pouring out your life with the chesed of God to one another. And it is beautiful and humbling. It is forming for me to even see the love that you have for one another in that. And what I chiefly want us to know this morning is that though the redemption we long for is often unseen by us in the midst of suffering, it is no less real and it is no less sure. And as we wait in Advent, it is not a season of simply turning that frown upside down or looking for the silver lining amidst brokenness and suffering. It is a season of being honest about the depth of our longing for redemption and also a season of opening the posture of our hearts to the possibility that unseen hope and longed-for redemption are coming. In this season, we are called to cultivate waiting together. We ask the Lord to comfort us with his presence and his people as we grieve our lost hopes, and as we ask him to sustain us that we might not lose hope. We grieve our unanswered longings and we ask that God would help us to see the ways that he is already showing us his chesed, his steadfast love. Naomi and Ruth and all the people of Israel longed not only for a kinsman redeemer, they longed for an ultimate redeemer. One that bought them not only out of suffering and sorrow, but even out of sin and death. One that could say to them on the cross, it is finished. Sin is finished. It, is, it can no longer define us because of Jesus. Death is vanquished. It will not get the final word because of our resurrected Christ. Suffering has been entered into by our Christ who now knows our suffering intimately. And he will bring a final reality and rest that makes all that is sad come untrue. 
It would be nearly 1,300 years after Ruth's time that Jesus would come. But but God sustained his people in the waiting. And he brought his promised redemption. And we this morning are a gathered and waiting people. Waiting amid suffering, groaning with creation. But brothers and sisters throughout history, God's people have said these words together. Christ has come and Christ will come again. And hope that is unseen by us us is no less sure. Our seeing his steadfast love is not a prerequisite for him moving towards us in his steadfast love. I want to close with these prayers that I took from a number of prayers from the church. These are actually in the Bible as well. And these are prayers that as we enter Advent that I want to encourage us to pray together. One of these is from the end of Jeremiah 14.9. I should have put them on the slides, but I didn't. And one of them is from Revelation 22. I invite you into saying these words longingly and wrestling them within your heart. I'll post them in the church slack this week from Jeremiah 49. You, O Lord, are in the midst of us and we are called by your name. Leave us not, O Lord, our God. Revelation 22, four and five. The servants of the lamb shall see the face of God whose name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Beloved, I invite you into this season of waiting. We are in the midst of suffering, and we cry out to God together, O Lord, who who are in the midst of us, we are called by your name. Leave us not, O Lord, our God. Amen. I'll move to the Q&A if any of these questions actually came through. Oh, good. Um, First question. I've tried waiting on my own, and to be honest, as hard as it is, it's still easier than risking either being dropped or hearing another look-on-the-bright-side platitude. So how do I know I can hope as part of a people instead of as persons. What do I do practically this week if I need that? Man, what a great question. (laughs) Part of the challenge and the call for us in this actually, I wonder how many of you are comfortable with someone sharing suffering with you and are comfortable with not giving a trite answer and walking away from the conversation and saying, everything's going to be fine. (laughs) I even wrestled in writing this sermon because I thought I could end this sermon in a way that could maybe give us more of a sort of fully victorious feeling, and I actually didn't want to do that. Because we are people who are trained in so many ways, and definitely the Western American church has been unfortunately also one of the things that has trained us to not be awaiting people. And that comes out when we talk to one another about suffering. We can't even handle so often actually being with others in the midst of suffering, and so we try to to short-circuit the process and just offer a platitude. And so this is not a direct answer to that question, but part of actually what I, I think is necessary for this question to be answered is for all of us in this season of Advent to be engaging and wrestling with what it means to wait and to be awaiting people. And to ask the Lord to allow us to sit in grief, 
to recognize that Romans chapter 8 is describing all of our experience until kingdom come, that we are groaning and awaiting people. So I think the first thing is that we actually have to do the wrestling ourselves to become the kind of people that can sit in longing and waiting in a far-off hope, knowing that God still meets us in the here and now. But the second thing that I would say in this wrestling of how do we know is, I mean, (laughs) I do think that even though this is um, aspirationally the place where we are awaiting people together, that is true that we are awaiting people together, but we don't all do it very well together. (laughs) Um, I mean, even in this story, right? Like Naomi says to Ruth, go home. (laughs) Go find the quickest and shortest solution to finding a husband. Go back to your family's hometown. And Ruth said, no, that's, I'm actually going to be a part of God's waiting people. Regardless of whether I know that I'm going to find a husband and a kinsman redeemer, that's not what I'm putting my hope in. I'm, I'm coming to be a part of the waiting people. Um, so even Ruth in this passage doesn't necessarily get it right. So we're going to get it wrong with one another. Um, but one thing that I would say is look for people in your midst who you know are acquainted with suffering and you see that they have grown and are growing in the midst of it and are wrestling with Jesus in the midst of it. There are a lot of stories in this church of people who have been through profoundly difficult things and who are going through profoundly difficult things. And they are beautifully waiting as God's people. There are people here who can hear you and respond with profound grace and mercy and embody God's has said to you. But uh, it does take time. It is wise, I think, to to not just assume that everyone's going to get it, but to take time and to actually get a sense for whether people actually have wrestled with suffering and wrestled with God amidst it. Um, And as far as like what practically to do this week, man, take these prayers. Get an Advent Advent book. Take some of the ancient prayers of the church. I can, again, I'll post some of these this week um, in the, the church slack so that you have some of them, but make a rhythm of praying these longing prayers of waiting. Okay, last question. Um, It's a very simple one. Was Orpah wrong to leave Naomi? It's a complicated question. I don't know that I can really answer that question because I don't know what Orpah's motivations were. Um, In many ways, she was seeking to follow her mother-in-law's wishes. Uh, I, I think that we always ought to be hesitant to assume the motives or what's going on in someone else or how God's at work in others. Uh, But what we can know for sure is what God was up to in Ruth, because there's a lot that's told us and explained to that, uh, about that to us. Um, Actually, I'll kind of refer to some of what Brad mentioned last week in Waiting for Judgment, as we talked a lot about this, that our tendency is to try to make a quick assessment of one another, um, which I think comes out in how we read these stories and kind of like, okay, was Orpah right or wrong? And It's a fair question to wrestle with, but I'm not sure that we can really know. (laughs) We can really know what God was up to in Orpah and what God ultimately did in and through her, Um, but we can see what God was up to in Ruth and see the profound faith um, that God was working in her and how he's meeting her in the midst of that. Um, I'll leave it there with our questions. Those are actually the only two questions we had, but uh, let me pray for us as we move towards uh, the Lord's Supper. Father, um, I, I think probably like many of us here this morning, um, I feel the tension of waiting. 
that um, even in this sermon, in this passage, that God's people still had 1,300 more years to wait for Jesus, you to come in person. And 2,000 years later, we're still waiting for you to come again to make all things new. So Lord, we ask that you would meet us in the waiting, that you would show us your mercy and grace in ways that we haven't even begun to fathom that you could meet us in the here and now. Lord, you know that we are suffering. We know, you know that we are a suffering people. We know that you have entered into suffering with us. But we ask, Lord, that you would show us your mercy, your presence, and your chesed this morning, even as we watch and wait together. In Jesus' name, amen. We wouldn't need to...